0: My guest today is Eddie Turner. As you'll hear in our conversation, Eddie is an incredibly dynamic and charismatic human being who spends a lot of time and energy working with the question of how leaders lead. He's the author of 140 Simple Messages to Guide Emerging Leaders. He is uh, the founder of the Leadership Accelerator, the host of the podcast Keep Leading, and As he has helped leaders navigate these times of uncertainty, he's emerged with some clarity around the kinds of leadership and the kinds of organizations that help people thrive, people from all walks of life. He also really beautifully speaks to his own journey as a black man in America, waking up to and owning his power and his unique capacities to serve, and also the ways in which Society has inadvertently or, in many cases, intentionally tried to keep him from that power. And finally, what seems to be most important in his story, the ways in which people in positions of power have reached out and extended and invited in, and how he hopes and aspires to do the same, and that really leadership at its best is inviting everyone to the table who needs to be at the table. This is a really fun and meaningful and illuminating conversation, and I trust that you'll get a lot out of it. So let's get settled in and hear what Eddie has for us. Eddie, welcome to the Wonder Dome. Andy, thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Yes, yes. Eddie, you and I have crossed paths now a few times over the years uh, through our shared passion for and connection to the Adaptive Leadership Network. And every time I encounter you, I experience this just tremendous force for good. Like It just seems to me (laughs) that you really care about everyone you connect with. And I just like, I'm so psyched to share some of that energy with whoever listens into this conversation.
1: Well, thank you, Andy. I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, I've been impressed with you ever since we first met, and it's just a joy to be here with you and to have a chance just to talk and catch up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Eddie. I'm so glad. we. T- and, it, and as always with busy people, we took a little while to land this plane, but now that we're here, I'm really psyched.
1: Yeah, we've been planning this just last year. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. At the, at the last uh, adaptive leadership conference, I think was it? Oh, it's the international the Institute of Coaching conference. I think That's is when right. we last had a chance to hang out for a little That's bit. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: and and it was at that conference that I really like got. That was like I sort of knew you primarily through the adaptive leadership lens, but then I really got to understand you as deeply passionate for coaching. I mean, you're sort of. I I I see you to be kind of a coach's coach. I mean, you're 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 certified in many different with many different organizing bodies. You mentor other coaches. You're featured as as coach of the week uh, with the International Coaching Federation. You're doing this amazing podcast. Keep leading, like you're just really out there, sort of speaking to the power of great coaching. And and that was inspiring me to me. I was like, oh, here's like someone who's
1: really like all in on this. Well, thank you, Andy. I, I think that, yeah, I think, I think equally we were both surprised to see each other there because we'd only yeah. seen each other in the yeah. adaptive leadership yeah. uh, circle and to realize that, Oh, you're a coach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm a coach too. <laughs> so we had this whole new dimension yeah. to our friendship yeah, and uh, just experiencing the power that coaching brains and certainly being able to use some of that with our colleagues over at ALN. So, uh, And certainly with the affiliation that the Institute of Coaching has to Harvard anyway, it just is just a nice match.
0: Yeah, it really is. So how did you get um, how long have you been on this journey into coaching and and what kicked you off on it?
1: That is a good question. (laughs) So there is the sorry, as I moved the bench there, (laughs) there is the formal answer and what i realized later is the actual answer.
0: Oh, okay, I'd love to hear the actual answer, but i'll take i'll take both
1: if you want to. So in 2014, actually 20 2013-2014 circa, <laughs> some, uh, someone said to me, you know, you're really good with uh the executives and the things you do with people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You should think about becoming a coach. Hmm. I laughed at them. <laughs> me a coach? I'm not a coach. And Then uh, this same person suggested that I attend my first conference at the International, sorry, not the International Coaching Federation, that I attend my first conference for the Association for Talent Development. They had convinced me in becoming a member again. I had Mm. been a member in college, but never active. They Mm. convinced me becoming a member again and then said, okay, now that you're a member, you need to go to the conference. And I'm like, wow, this is a lot that you're requiring. (laughs) And when I went there, I formally, I ran into the, they pointed out the booth. They said, you see that booth over there? It was the International Coaching Federation. You need to go talk to those guys because (laughs) they are the best when it comes to coaching. And uh, I went over, had a conversation. On my plane ride home, I ended up having another conversation with someone else. And that ended up being the journey to my formal coaching, pursuit of coaching Mm -hmm. certifications. Mm -hmm. And looking back now over all that I've accomplished, I say that informally, I've been coaching, you know, 20 years, 30 Mm. years Mm. because I've been coaching my entire I.T. career. I was Mm. an I.T. professional before I got into leadership development. And all of those conversations I had with uh, leaders at all levels was always around coaching, but on technology. Mm it was never about their leadership and emotional intelligence and all the things we're doing today. And so that's why I realized that the first 20 years were really the setup for my next 20.
0: (laughs) It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. What I'm tuning into as you share that is, is the sort of way in which whether or not you have the, the label of the certification, there's an approach to engaging with people. That's about rising, like a rising tide that lifts all boats kind of approach to work. And um, it sounds like that was sort of part of your DNA well before you kind of picked up the the mantle and said I'm a coach. Is that right?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And so it was a part of who I was, and certain things that I just did naturally. And then as a uh, when you go through formal training, then you realize you know what things really are, and and there is a framework that you can apply, and that what other people were calling coaching and saying I was good at uh, was really not coaching at all. In the sense that, you know, you're giving advice, you're consulting, you're helping people figure things out because you present the best idea. (laughs) And then when you go through formal coach training, as you and I have, you learn that, no, you let them come up with what the best idea is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And what was it like when that light bulb went off? It was like, oh, there's a deeper layer here around really letting whoever I'm supporting do the heavy lifting and do the work. They need to do to get where they need to get, as opposed to me, even if I have 10 great ideas, it's like, how, how did you, what was it like when you sort of realized, oh, this is about them, not about whatever I might know, even if it's a lot.
1: You know, that's the hardest part for all of us. Yeah. All of our life, we've been rewarded for having the answers, you know, be it a grade, a GPA, mm-hmm. entry into institutions such as you and I, you have a Harvard degree. I have the executive education training, (laughs) but the, you know, the ability to get into those institutions was based on that. And then to all of a sudden be told, no, it's not about what, you know, it's about what you can help the other person figure out that they know. Yeah. It's a, it's a huge shift. And so you're no longer rewarded for your knowledge, but your ability to help others produce their own knowledge. Yeah. I love that. And it, it feels
0: like, as you, as you articulate that way, it's, it's about helping others produce their own knowledge. It feels like the, the world most of us grow up in actually doesn't let us produce much knowledge. It, it's more about like retaining and repeating knowledge that someone else has told us is important.
1: Absolutely. Until yeah. you get to grad school, uh, you know, so along the way somewhere in some, uh, I'd say, undergraduate pro- pro- programs, you may experience this. But, yeah, largely we're told to master other great thinkers ideas, put them into use, write papers on them. But at a grad school program, then you start to be asked to think through becoming your own thought leader and producing your own body of research in, in some cases. Yeah. Your own hypothesis yeah. and such as they uh get produced in a capstone of sorts or a, at the higher level, not just a master's program, but a PhD level program, obviously, where you're doing a district full dissertation. Yeah.
0: But you know, it's rare, like, as we get up those, those sort of ladders of specialization, fewer and fewer people have the kind of interest or, or stamina or desire to like get a PhD. And so you ha- have a lot of people who are really smart, who've learned a lot of knowledge and can kind of repeat it and maybe are organically producing their own knowledge too, but they're out there in leadership roles. They're out there in the world, just doing their thing. And whether they're conscious of it or not, they still have the kind of uh, programming. I don't know what to call it. The kind of cultural programming that says having the right answer is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. And, and you care a lot about leadership. I mean, this is where you've sort of staked your flag in the ground. As far as I can tell is helping leaders be more emotionally intelligent, helping them communicate more effectively, helping them really get, get in touch with purpose and, and, and helping them in their organizations produce knowledge, not just have the right answer. And I wonder, like, is, is that right? Am I reading what you're about? Right. And how do you help leaders who haven't necessarily had that formal training to be, to be that level of critical thinking to start to shift from being right towards being open and curious and emotionally intelligent?
1: You're absolutely correct. I think one of the things that always frustrated me is that we, we use phrases like think outside the box, you know, or you know, uh, be innovative. And then really what happens is we've we, we only rewarded people for staying in the box, for conforming to this thinking, this set of behaviors. So inside the corporation, you know, I'm sure you see this with your clients as well. You know, I'm dealing with clients that come to me frustrated because they have these great ideas, but they're not allowed to put them on the table to be heard. They're not yeah. allowed to try to experiment. They're told, no, you must do it this way, and I don't want to hear anything else in so many cases. And that is yeah. so frustrating to people who are brilliant, people who are creative. And so what happens is over time, they turn off that side and they just get they they fall in line. And they they march to the to the beat to the conformity mm. and the uniformity, <laughs> mm. right of the organization. Yeah, and so that's why you know we see what happens in tech organizations like Google. Google says we're going to reward you. Not only we're going to reward you, but we're going to give you twenty percent of your work week to do something that's completely unrelated to your job.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, mm. that's where we got great tools like Gmail came from, and the, the and the apps. Because of that 20%, someone was, they were saying, hmm, hey, could we do? And then they just explored that. So, some of the greatest ideas that came out of Google came from those employees who were allowed to experiment, who right. were rewarded and giving the latitude to do this. And so, yes, yeah, so I've been really passionate about helping people to tap back into their creative creativity, mm-hmm. to reward them for being curious. And exploring their curiosity, and not turning off that inner child. Yeah. Nice.
0: Nice. Yeah. It's sort of like the the world, the sort of what you're describing a, a few sentences back around, like think outside the box, be innovative. But then in parentheses, as long as it's not too far outside the box, as long as it's as long as it's inside this bigger box that we tell you to think outside. You know, it's like there's always caveats, and and the words and the actions don't line up. But what I hear you saying is when they line up, when someone says, go experiment, and then they have your back and they let you go
1: experiment, all sorts of cool stuff starts to happen. It does. And the interesting thing is when you don't have a company that allows that, you find that sometimes those great thoughts, people lead the company, start their own company, and <laughs> they say, this is what I couldn't do inside my organization. Uh, you know, I'm thinking yeah. about one great product I use right now. They left the organization that they were working for made their own product. It's the exact same. But now they're the competitor, and then sometimes <laughs> that same company buys that company back, and now they, it's like welcome home, guys.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know, it's it's unbelievable how that works. In fact, I interviewed the great the the uh, the project manager, the champion of project management. His company said, "We don't have time for that." He worked for this prestigious consulting firm. We don't have time for that. That's not going to make us any money. Well, he went on to become the world champion of project management. He is the guru. Harvard Business Review just gave him a huge contract. Uh, anything on that subject, he owns that space around wow. the world and serve wow. as the chair of the Project Management Institute. Of course, that company invited him back, <laughs> 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 and, and uh, he got he got redemption right. But why do we have to leave the company and go off to become a great success for them to realize what they had inside all along? Mm. And I don't remember where I read this, but one uh, one article called that instead of how allowing have, forcing people to leave you become an entrepreneur, why not build space for them and how have, have them stay inside the company and become an entrepreneur?
0: Mm. Mm. Keep
1: that expertise in house.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's it's it's interesting there's you use the phrase inner child before which I love and and we were talking offline before about how I'm a parent and you're soon to be one which is really exciting um, but there's this uh, there's this kind of catch22 that I'm tuning into as a parent that maybe maybe it is an analog in what you're saying which is you kind of can't you kind of can't parent a kid around something that you don't know how to do yourself. <laughs> It's the same kind of, you know, you, you say, do as I say, not as I do, but they're going to do as you do. And so these it's a lot of these companies I sense don't actually, even if they say think outside the box, it's actually like they don't have that capacity yet. And the people who do seem too different or too too maverick or too outsider or too strange that they don't even like see it. They're like, they don't see this person as an asset. They're like, this person's pain in the butt. <laughs> Is what, what it feels like. This two-year-old is a pain in my butt right now. Instead of like, oh, this two-year-old's really curious and asking lots of questions and exploring and and maybe getting themselves into positions that they could get hurt, but I'm here to like make sure they don't. It sort of seems the same thing. It's like companies could be hotbeds for innovation instead of places where that kind of inner child energy gets pruned off and 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 sent out. And then they're like, oh, now that you're all grown up and talented, we want you back. But they could have had that all along.
1: Well, let me say two things on that, Andy. I think yeah. number one, in some cases, it's just people being closed minded. Mm. They don't they themselves can't see or choose not to see mm. anything else. Mm. And then the other places it's those folks who are just defending their turf. Well, Andy, if you come up with this great idea, it's gonna make me look incompetent. Mm. Where's my glory? So I believe that's what's happening in more cases than not. Uh, Going back to your analogy about the parent, if they don't have capacity, and I'm sure this has happened in in your life and with uh, other folks' life, that uh, you you know, right? I don't have any children yet, but I know what I've done with my nephews and what my parents did with me. If they didn't have a, uh, if they had a deficiency in an area, right? They sent me to somebody who had that proficiency.
0: Yeah. yeah, Some of my friends,
1: they're joking about the inability to do the math today. And I know that's going to be a problem for me because I couldn't do the old math, let alone the new (laughs) stuff. My child will be sent to some tutor, some program to get these extra skills. You know, uh, dad sends, uh, uh, you know, mom and dad may choose to send the kids to ballet or to uh, everybody's giving me advice now. One gentleman told me the other day. Got to get them into martial arts. You know, so everybody tells me about a program. <laughs> everyone,
0: yeah, everyone has it. Right.
1: <laughs> so, yeah. So where we don't have a, a proficiency, we send them out. We get mm. them trained up because, hey, I'm not an expert in this area, but this program is, or this person is, this person in our neighborhood community center or our, our religious faith, we send them someplace. We don't kill the child's dream. We want them to stay curious and we nurture it. I think about, and I thank my mom for all the years she put up with my horrible saxophone playing until <laughs> I became great. She lied to me and made me think that I was awesome. And became <laughs> awesome. Yeah. You know, the other part I was going to say about this concept of, uh, of, of what corporations do, it's escaping me now. I was going to say something else about that and this ability. It'll come back to me later, I guess, Andy. Sorry about that. I'm drawing a blank. That's all right. But was it
0: something was- about the turf stuff or the uh,
1: closed-minded stuff that you were pulling on earlier? No. Uh, you know, the, the Going out and the, the expertise. Yeah, it was the second point I wanted to make on it. But I, w- I wanted to give you a counterpoint on that. That's uh, kind of how I see that. But then also, there, there was a second point I wanted to use to kind of button that up. But Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> It'll come, if it comes back, yeah. If it comes back at some point, let's just just throw it back in because this feels really exciting to me. I'm like, actually, even as you articulate that approach, the sort of um, the sort of guide on the side approach to parenting of like, okay, Eddie is really into saxophone. It doesn't sound good yet, but I can see he's into it. I'm gonna I'm gonna provide the support. Either on my own if I know how to play, or find a teacher
1: who knows how to play, and just create the space. Yes, so that brings it back to me. Yes, so the idea of uh, Marshall Reynolds, my coach, uh, says this a lot. In the expert's mind, there are few possibilities, Mm. and the childlike mind, there are many. Mm. Right, because Mm. the child keeps asking why. You give them an answer. They say, "But why?" You give them another answer. But why? Right? You were going to after a while. But the point is, yeah. So to some of these leaders, no, this is the way we've always done it. There's no need to change it. Right? We've got expertise. They don't see another possibility. Yeah. But to the yeah. childlike mind, and if we can stay in that zone, even as leaders, right, we will continue searching for other options, certain pos- other possibilities. And we see it happening around us every day in business. That's where the next great products come from. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's where the next companies are born because somebody is asking questions. Somebody is saying, but why? Mm. <laughs> and as a result, you, you see new ideas that are born. Right. And they keep
0: asking until until they get to the place where no one has an answer. Yes. Yeah. And then that's the place where innovation starts to happen.
1: Exactly.
0: Right. Like so I'm so imagining a sort of, you know, Google was an example that you use, but like you could imagine any company. And they just, if they were to just look at their budget and the way they budget their time and their money, it's just wonderful. What if, what if we had X percentage of dollars and time built into our talent development program or to our leadership development program or to our human resources budget to create the kind of learning experiences and uh, create the kind of spaces where it's never wrong to ask why, to, to like keep asking the why question. And see what comes out of that. And like just to like make that a part of uh, your DNA as a company sort of almost not only sounds really cool, not only sounds like a company I'd want to work for, but actually at, th- at this point in our, in, our, in our global stage, it's like that's going to be the, that might be the make or break thing that determines whether or not you stay a company 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 years from now, if you don't, if you're able to build that, like to cultivate
1: that in your company. Well, Andy, we just experienced that to your point. It may decide if you were around five months from now. That's mm-hmm. what we saw. It when COVID 19 broke out and engulfed our world, you mm-hmm. know, my friends around the world started to tell me how it was impacting them, you know, in January, February. Well, when it really hit us in March, you know, I never finished my second book, but I had been talking about how companies need to go virtual and how to do it well for 10 years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Organizations that would fight. Then I come and show the wedding, wow, this has really changed things. I've got documented case studies on this, right? Well, organizations said, we can't do this virtual. You must be in the office for this to happen. Oh, we must see you, right? All this FaceTime, got to be face-to-face. Overnight, organizations were forced to pivot, literally. And so the only good thing, well, there are some good things that have come out of this crisis, but one good thing that came out of this crisis is it forced organizations to do things that they wouldn't have done for another 10 years. Nice.
0: Yeah, that's a great insight.
1: And so just think about that example alone, how much pushback people gave. And now, you know, this idea that we can't work from home and be successful, we can't work from home, people are going to be goofing off, they're going to do this, they're going to do that. Well, we're finding that's not the case, we're finding it actually, it actually invades people's home life. Now they're working twenty four hours. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah <laughs> right? there's another problem. We have to, we have to, of course, we have to rebalance on the other side. Actually,
1: yeah, the line yeah. has been blurred, so yeah. people are being productive. That extra hour they were spending in traffic, an hour each way, they're actually turning that into work time. Yeah, so that's just one example of how we make this pivot when we can look outside and see. uh, you keep asking that, but why question? Yeah. Why are we insisting this? Why are we insisting everybody be in the office? So now you have places like Twitter, you have LinkedIn, you have Microsoft that's come out and said, you never have to come back to the office. Well, what does that do now? That creates new talent. You know, sometimes HR says we can't find talent. Well, now if everybody's working from anywhere in the world, that excuse is gone. Yeah, you just yeah. open up a whole new crop of people who can apply for these roles that you say you have a shortage in.
0: Yeah, oh, that's awesome. You know, I'm also I'm also aware as we talk about the upside. Another thing I've noticed in, in like my work with clients and my conversations with people like you is that the companies who were already to some degree. And this kind of underlines your point, but I want to just flesh it out some more. Who are already, to some degree, and the more so the better, creating really healthy, strong cultures, places that valued their human resources as truly the only resource they actually have, not just a line item in the budget, but actually like our people are our success. Were the companies that were the were the most equipped. To, a, to adapt and, a, and adopt new practices when the time came and recognize that, hey, you're not just working from home right now. You're working from home in a pandemic and your kids are at home if you have kids and this and this is going on, and that's going on. And they took and the companies that took care of their people and recognized that actually were more resilient. I've definitely talked to people who are like this the companies who aren't thinking about that are inadvertently burning their employees out because they're trying to find new ways to micromanage them. And they're trying to, they're like, oh, well, you don't have an hour commute anymore. So you have to be doing an hour, you know, you have to be doing this much more product, you know, whatever it is, there's a way in which that that sort of force that was already in place when they're in the office is now just being reapplied to to even worse effects virtually. So I feel like there's actually some companies that are really starting to like take off in this moment and others that are really starting to feel the pain because they're having to really look at all the dynamics that were kind of bad when they were in the office that are now really bad virtually. And I wonder if you're seeing that at all, or if you have any, any perspective on that, either in agreement or, or another take. I
1: do. Two things I want to share with you. Number one, when you talk about what, what you know, this this we say that people are our greatest asset You know, that's what we pride ourselves on. That's what we have the importance. Well, we're seeing that there's a gap for some companies. Mm. For example, I talked to a C-level individual the other day. He says, Eddie, I'm questioning where I spend my money now. I've been a dedicated United Airlines flyer or American Airlines. Mm. But I'm seeing what they're doing to their employees, laying them off, getting rid of them by the thousands. Mm. But Mm. contrast that with what Southwest Airlines did. Southwest Airlines, starting at the top, the CEO says, I will not take a salary in 2021. Wow. The next level of management, they're taking a 20% pay cut for all of 2021. And the next level is taking a 10%. So the hourly level, or the folks who are not a part of the union. Now, the unions, they ask them, they can't demand yeah, that they, they take a cut. Yeah. But when you start at the top and you work through every layer and says, here's what we're doing, it's pretty tough <laughs> yeah. for the unions to say, well <laughs> we're not doing anything. but more importantly, for the other airlines it showed you don't have to start getting rid of folks immediately. yeah and the CEO yeah. said the reason I'm doing this is so we can stick to our tradition that we never lay off anybody mm. Think about that. Here's a person that's not just saying people are our greatest asset. He's putting his money where his mouth is. Yeah, that's awesome. So so some companies have shown themselves to be simply exemplary, Southwest Airlines. And I'm told Delta did the same thing. I never got a chance to verify that. But I'm told Delta did something similar. So you have some companies that have shown themselves to be exemplary Mm. in this aspect during this critical time. And you have others that are making you kind of question your loyalty. Totally. that's just the airlines. We can look at that in other industries as well. But then the other side, you have something that I saw uh, just yesterday. We were talking about the Institute of Coaching. Uh, I attended their webinar, and I listened to the gentleman who's been at Novartis. His name is Marcus. I can't remember his last name, but he's been with Novartis for 20 years. He's the country head, I believe, for diversity. He said that they, uh, one of the managers suggested he told everybody he bought a Peloton bike. He's talked about how much he loved the bike. And so everybody else went and bought Peloton bikes. And so he said, hey, well, for our next meeting, we're all going to be on a Peloton bike. <laughs> so they're having Peloton meetings. Think about that.
0: That's right? awesome. Yeah. So
1: everybody getting energized. And they said that what happens is because your your blood pressure is up, there's more energy in the meeting. <laughs> and because of those endorphins that are getting released. They're crediting that with making them more creative.
0: Totally, and there's a ton of science to back that up. That when you're in, when that that those kind of chemicals have positive impacts on our creative thinking, on our energy, on all of it, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, so just an example of yeah, who says a meeting has to be us stuck behind the Zoom screen? You know, doing what we normally do, sitting in these chairs, and we're all having back issues now because everybody's sitting at home and they didn't necessarily have the right setup, so we didn't have that nice. Uh, chair we have in the office you know we had our home chair right so oh, instead of doing it. that can we turn this into yeah let's exercise we don't have to do it the same way we've always done it
0: <laughs> eddie from here on out i'm doing all my podcast interviews on an on a exercise this is, <laughs> you just revolutionize this man no i love it i love it that's uh it's a great insight there are just you could just look at any aspect of your company if you're a leader any aspect and either as the leader yourself or or authorize and empower someone else to say, how can we do this more creatively in a way that's better for everyone? And, and trust that if we make it better for everyone, then they'll do their work better than they ever have before. Like, I feel like that's what Southwest is saying. It's like, you're too important to us not to do this because we know we wouldn't be the company we were without each and every one of you.
1: And, and think about and the that's like the that. like most low, Yeah,
0: like I'm like if I work for Southwest, I'm like never leaving Southwest. I'm yeah. not going over to American Airlines. And exactly. Like, never. Exactly.
1: Ever, right. Yeah. That's that's the message it sends, yeah. and they want to stay. It's not a matter of hey, I'm going to leave because I, I I can get a better job down the street. I know I've got a job here. Yeah. I know they're going to stick by me. Yeah. It's yeah. a powerful message.
0: Yeah, it's so powerful. mm. So you mentioned um, uh, diversity a, a few sentences back as kind of part of this equation. And I know that you were recently featured in the Wall Street Journal talking about what it is to be a great ally, right? And we're in this in this other much longer, some people refer to it as a long pandemic, right? We have the COVID pandemic, but also this question of of racial justice and equity. And you've also just really stepped out in a pretty public way to say like, this is what it means as leaders to to be a good ally. And I sense that there's like a lot of overlap in what we're talking about here, that if you make your, your companies, a safe space for everyone, for diversity of thought, for diversity of background, for diversity of ethnicity and race, like if you think about it from all of these variables, your company is going to be more adaptable and more creative and over the long haul. And I just wonder if, you could speak a bit more to, to that layer of of this this work that you do and and this moment that we're in and, and how that's showing up for you right now.
1: Sure, you know, before June twenty twenty, this is a subject I'd never talked about publicly. Is that right? Yeah. If I had a client, they had they wanted to talk about it, we would talk. But I would not talk about race and diversity and inclusion publicly. If someone asked me a question. I literally had two or three people who I always referred them to, Mm. and I would run the other way. I didn't talk Mm. about those things. And I Mm. felt, uh, you know, I I started on a personal journey, and this has been quite cathartic for me to start to talk about this. Mm. And, you know, I I listened to Dr. Robert Livingston. Uh, I went to an event uh, for Harvard Kennedy School alumni. uh, They were celebrating the 40th anniversary about three years ago. And he's one of the premier authorities in the world on this subject. I was fascinated by him. I'd never heard of him, but he blew us away by Mm. what he explained. Mm. Well, this episode of events that unfolded with George Floyd gave me a chance to revisit what I learned under Dr. Livingston, who actually also happens to be a a black man. And it made me start to talk about these things and put it in the context of my own narrative. Mm. I realized that by me not talking about race relations, that in some ways I was doing a disservice to others, (laughs) especially young black men, because people might assume that, hey, if you comport yourself a certain way, these things don't happen. Mm. And in fact, sometimes I found myself blaming other people that, you know, this is only happening to you because, you know, you had a hoodie on or you were, your pants were sagging and all that, right? And I realized that, no, (laughs) you know what? You can have a suit on. Eddie Turner, and it's going to happen to you. They made me very aware of who I am. You are Mm. still a black man and you're going to get the same treatment. So Mm. I've had my episodes and that made it very clear to me. And I was embarrassed when those things happened to me.
0: Mm.
1: What I was dealt with in a, in a way that was, you know, no. So it doesn't matter how you're dressed. It doesn't matter what you've got on. At the end of the day, I can't take off this black skin. Mm. Mm. And that is what I'm treated by. And so, you know, I started to share some of those experiences that I've had, but then I also shared the great things that have happened. Mm. So I've had these injustices that have happened because of what white people have done to me. But let me tell you about these white people that have done some amazing things for Eddie Turner. They were my ally. And because Mm. of them being an ally and opening the door for Eddie Turner, teaching Eddie Turner, helping Eddie Turner, all those folks that I talked about in terms of moving me from IT to learning a talent, uh, the person who said, you need to become a coach, all those people were white people. And all those people said, Eddie, let me help you. And who got me on my journey and got on the path, they were white people. So my message has been that, hey, yeah, these bad things have happened, but I don't cast aspersions on the entire race. Mm-hmm. And because of these folks who use their access to power, because that that's where it is, right? You know, it's not like uh, another black person could help me. It was, I guess some could if they had it, but in each case for Eddie Turner it was always a white person who helped me. Mm-hmm. And so my message to audiences have been, Hey, is there an Eddie Turner you can help? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And mm-hmm. then also for, if you are an Eddie Turner, where's your Bob Dean? And I start to list the names of those who've helped me, you know, the, the Sally Helgelsons and people like that who, have helped Eddie Turner. And then I uh, I pair that with some of the research that's out there and what has happened. And because for a long time, black people were told, this is just, some, they're imagining this. This is just in your head. You're making this up or you're still trying to hold on to the past and bring this past stuff up. No, it's not past for us. It's still reality. Yeah. And the thing that has helped are the cameras. They've brought it to light. But then I also use it as an opportunity to expand the lens. So Can we be an ally, not just of uh, when it comes to race, can we be an ally when it comes to the LGBT community? Can we be an ally of women who, wow, we have a new reason to celebrate now these days, right? Uh, uh, Our first female vice president elect. Uh, Can we be an ally of those who are uh, of a certain age because we see an increased discrimination against people who are elderly now in the workforce? For the first time ever, we have five generations in the workforce, and some people feel we should just push that older generation out, leave it to the young people. No, that's not right. Hmm. And and then the the uh, need to be an ally to people with disabilities, hmm. the largest group minority group in the world, who all too often aren't given an opportunity. Yeah. Uh, Hobbin Gurma, the deafblind woman who conquered Harvard Law School, she explained that to me <laughs> very clearly, man. Yeah, so yeah. I always thank her for that. Yeah, oh, So that's idiot. how it ended up in the Wall Street Journal because I told the story to the CEO of Linkage, uh, Jennifer McCollum, and I'd never told anybody the things I told her, so she put me on a panel. And then when she ran the panel, uh, it I didn't realize how. I knew they were a major organization, but I didn't know how far reaching their tentacles were. It ended up, uh, the promotion for it ended up in the inbox of the Wall Street Journal journalist. And he asked her, could he interview her before we did the the session? And uh, she said, yes, but only if my panelists can be part of it. And so it was because of her being an ally in that moment. Wow. Yeah. Because she could have, she's a CEO. She could have just did it all herself. She didn't need me but uh, she did. And he found my story of interest. And so that's how that came about.
0: It's amazing, man. I'm really, um, I'm just sort of in touch to like the, the learner's mindset. Like there's that, you're talking about the child mindset to like really reconnect to, you have some beliefs and you could just keep doing those beliefs, or you could start to listen and learn and, and send really like, Own it for yourself and be curious and ask questions and then start to help other people ask questions and, and do it in a way that to me sounds really like you're straight, you're taking it straight on, but you're doing it in a way that is, uh, that is inviting people who are, who may be really scared about even stepping into this conversation for fear of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing or or being, being positioned as the enemy, you're just saying like, look, there's room enough on this boat for everybody. But if we're going to make that room, if we're going to get everyone on board, we got to like work at every level. We got to work at every level. And the level I'm, I'm working at is that here for me personally, but also for anyone who thinks themselves a leader, you got to recognize that you have power and you can use that power consciously as an ally or it's going to get used anyways. And some, some of us aren't going to get on the boat as a result. And I just think that really, I just love how you kind of t- took that personal stand and stepped out publicly. Cause that takes courage, man.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, when you and I were at the Institute of coaching last year, I met uh, Jennifer Brown and she was another person that was pivotal. Remember, I don't know if you remember her session. I yeah. mean, she's this gorgeous white woman who walks out on the stage and you know, I mean, you look at her and you would, you would know it at first, but she talks about being a lesbian. And she talks about how she uh, went through a period of masking. She couldn't put out the pictures of her, her, her lover, her partner, and all these things she had to do to kind of exist. Yeah. And then she starts to look at other areas where people mask. And so listening to Jennifer, I sat there thinking, you know what? I'm masking mm. because I would do everything I could not to, you know, There's so many ways to not live up to just being a black man. Mm. Right. And I started mm. to realize all these different things I do. And I, 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 I mean, so she was one of the people who really opened my eyes on that when she said, what she said along those lines.
0: Mm. And I get the sense that, that, as you take off that mask that actually it's like a relief. Like there's a, is that right? Like I sense that you like just have like a lot more energy and freedom around this now. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Freedom to be who you are. And, 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 you know, the New York times talked about the, and they, they did a retraction on it, but because they originally called the measurement of the pressure that black people are under, they called it allostasis, and they corrected it to say the allostatic load—the measurement mm. of the pressure that you are under because you are. They didn't use the word masking all day, but essentially, you you are you are going through these these regulations of trying not to come off as an angry black woman, trying not to be the aggressive black man. You know all those different things, and uh, the things we that we do to exist in corporate America. Uh, that metric of unit, that allostatic load that shortens a life lifespan of an African-American prematurely, uh, that's how much pressure you're under. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was like, you know, taking a deep breath and just blowing it all out when I was able to start to just say, you know, mm-hmm. I am who I am, man. I got to This is what happens. And yeah, this stuff has happened to me and I'm not going to try to hide it or be ashamed about it and realize that no matter what has happened to me, I have not gone through what Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and all the others have gone through. Trayvon Martins and you know the long list, and certainly even before that, you know uh, the generation of folks, you know the John Lewis's and the Martin Luther Kings and the Malcolm X, all those folks, you know, where we thought, hey, that thing that's a thing of the past, mm. but no, we had all these reminders along the way that no, it still happens. Yeah, yeah. Mm.
0: I uh, had a guest on maybe six months back and, and she talked about for people in the LGBTQ community, the uh, there's a similar, basically a similar, she didn't use the language of allostatic load, but I think, I think that would be the appropriate, like technical term that if you're a person who's part of the LGBTQ community, there's also a version of that. And, and they did some, she talked about some research where Basically, they looked at people who were out in their organization who could just be out and who they were and say, this is who I love and this is how I love them. And then there, then the people who had to mask. And again, I'm sort of taking your language and applying it to the story she shared. But, but the research basically showed that um, in the context of work, so they didn't look at lifespan, but in the context of work, the people who were out, We're always consistently more productive, more energized, like even the pressure of just being out and knowing that there might be some people in the organization who are judging you around that was less of a pressure than trying to fit a certain image. And that, and that like, so that masking, that allostatic load that you're talking about is all of us are doing some version of that. And those of us who have to do a lot of it, it takes a huge toll. It takes a huge toll. And I would just love like I uh, like for me, the world that I hear you kind of implying is a world in which, look, we're not trying to deny that you and I have different color skin, but we're also trying to live in a world where that doesn't define us. And the only way we're gonna get there, if we can ever get there, is this journey of like helping people let go of these loads of take it t- and take off these masks and really start to see that we're in relationship with each other and we're connected and and that we have to have each other's backs. Otherwise we're going to be coming at each other head on. So I just mm-hmm. like really am psyched that you're stepping into that and helping others do the same. And it's beautiful. Thanks, Andy. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Eddie. So so we've got like maybe about, um, about 10 more minutes here. And I'm curious as, as we're sitting here playing with these questions of creativity and innovation and, and diversity and making room for everyone on the boat, like what's, what are you seeing as the kind of either the, either the kind of cutting edge of, of this work in organizations or the, or the places where people are needing the most support? Like, what are you seeing as the frontier right now for, for leaders and organizations as we try and build uh, version 2.0 or I don't know, maybe it's version 10.0 of our, of our uh, business ecosystem that we all have. Like, how do, we do, how do we do capitalism and business better? What are you seeing as some of the cutting like, frontiers
1: here in the work that you do? Well, we're on the new frontier. Everybody's learning and everybody's experimenting. Yeah. You know, and so we all have a license right now to get really creative going mm-hmm. back to what we where we started. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, Richard Branson said something. I was listening to the world's number one CEO coach, Mark Thompson. Mm-hmm. and Mark Thompson talked about being with Richard Branson and Richard Branson told the story about when his house burned down, his, his uh, vacation house. And so all these people were there. And so they, they, this burns down it had been in the, you know, in the family for a number of years. I can't remember if it was 30 or whatever, but he'd had it for a while. And Richard Branson said, you know, when your house burns down, after you, you, you salvage what you can salvage, you make sure everybody's safe and all that. He said, you rebuild it. But you don't rebuild it the exact same way. Mm. Mm. You, you decide, hey, I'm going to make an adjustment here. We're going to build this out. We're going to add this. We're going to add that. We're going to use finer material. you you got to upgrade. So in business today, our houses have burnt down, so to mm. speak we are all rebuilding in the post covid world which we will get to one day we hope will not look like the world we, lo- we left in february 2019 hmm. before we all had to go home in march yeah we have a chance to do things differently will we demand that everybody stay in the offices as we talked about or will we give people a chance to be virtual as people go virtual, what demands will that produce? The real estate market, there was an article in Wall Street Drone the other day. It's already talking about how it used to be that you were looking for uh, a movie theater at your home, right? You go, you go get that big home in the suburbs. The big thing had been having that movie theater in the home. Well, now the big thing is a dedicated Zoom room,
0: <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. That
1: dedicated space that, because we just basically drove everybody home and people are taking calls from the bedrooms. So you can tell they're in the guest room. You can see, you can see the bed, the shot and all these kind of things. So people are saying, I need a, a, a either a, a specific home office or mm-hmm. a specific room for Zoom calls mm-hmm. where, where mm-hmm. I got a little extra soundproofing from everything else that's going on, right? And so uh, it's changing real estate, mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We'll see the opposite effect, unfortunately, for our friends in commercial real estate. Uh, they're going to feel a little bit different uh, effect. But our, our, our folks in, the, in, in residential real estate, they're going to see different demands. Mm-hmm. What other demands will we see in our places of employment? You know, I was just thinking about this this morning. You know, Dwight Eisenhower, one of the reasons he became known uh, as one of our great presidents is because he said, we're going to build an infrastructure. We're going to put build an interstate in the in country. That connected all of us. But you know what else that gave a need to? Trucks. (laughs) Right? You're hauling stuff across country now. Commerce was better as a result. One of the great things I think is a misfortunate opportunity for us that we've missed is every year we hear Congress get burdened down with infrastructure bills that never pass. Mm. Not only are we not taking care of the great roads that were put in place and the great airports and bridges, our infrastructure is crumbling in the country. But think about right now, I don't know about you in your part of the country, but I'm sure it's the same. You got a discount from your car insurance company because they realized none of us were driving. They didn't have to do all the payouts they normally make. Right. Yeah. And so if all of us were staying at home and certainly are driving less, wouldn't this be a good time to finally fix our roads and bridges Mm. where it's less inconvenience? Mm. Mm. Not only would that help out with with uh, especially during the time of COVID with jobs, for folks, because they're going to be outside, hopefully be a little bit uh, better, but we could give people better jobs. But we can take a chance to shore up the country's infrastructure at a time like this. Mm. You know, how hard is that? But why are we not thinking about that? What else can we be doing? So be it in our organizations, in our in our in our nation. In our homes, what can we do different? We don't have to go back to the same world. How can we build things and make them better, make them more efficient?
0: Why do you think uh, it's such a beautiful invitation, Eddie? And, and you asked, like, why aren't we thinking about that? And I, I'm curious if you have some perspectives. Like, it seems to me that that we might that we we may have already missed some opportunities because it's been you know six seven months, and But we still have, like, what's whatever space we have left, what opportunities are we possibly missing right now? And, like, what is that about us that how could we just, like, I want to just wonder how we can turn that switch on to 10. Like, I feel like you're living at a 10 around these questions, and it's like, how do we help more people get from three to even five or six around reimagining life as opposed to just hoping it gets back to the way it was?
1: I think, I think many people are starting to do that. I mean, look at even what Harvard has done. Think about how many programs they took online this year. Mm. We never thought you'd get a Harvard degree <laughs> online, right? But they, they did that this year. Yale, all of the IVs did that. Now, will they stay that way after the pandemic? You know, the answer right now was no. On the, on the latest application, they said, okay, this year only. You get the degree, the full degree, no footnote at the end, Right. But they may have to rethink that. Mm. We don't know. So will they change that? Uh, Certainly it's created a demand for technology. You know, I was thinking about what happens in the schools. Uh, Another conversation I was having where somebody said it would have taken us 10 years to get here. The instructional technologists always had trouble getting the students to use technology properly over the teachers. Mm. Overnight, again, everybody had to raise their proficiency.
0: Mm.
1: Right. So we're learning differently which means eventually we learn to work differently. Hmm. Parents who didn't have laptops have laptops in many cases now. Hmm. So we have given people tools that we may not have provided before. Families that maybe only had one computer now have multiple computers. Broadband, the need to have more broadband, the need to use it in a, in a, in a special way has changed. And we think about Internet 3.0 and why we have broadband, uh, Internet access and everything. Mm. And how that changes learning, it changes work. we uh, we don't have to continue to do things the way that we've always done them. We just have to look and continue to ask ourselves, why am I doing it this way? Mm. And mm. really be curious about it.
0: Yeah, I'm almost imagining a, a there's an opportunity for like one, that's just the question. If everyone could start asking that question, that would that would produce amazing new ideas. But it's almost like, what are other ways where we can, The COVID has created an outrageous number of constraints. And I wouldn't wish those constraints upon anyone, but we're here and we're adapting. But it's sort of the sense of like, actually, if we had some more constraints, if we had more challenges in our way, we might actually be forced to, to do this, to innovate in all sorts of other areas. So it's like, not only, maybe there's not only a question of why have we always done it this way and how can we do it differently? Maybe there's a question of, where can we make things harder for ourselves in the short term, so that we actually get long term gains? Or where can we make put constraints in that force us to not take the easiest path, but actually the most creative path? It sort of seems like creativity and resistance. There seems to be a relationship there. If it's too easy, you're not going to get the creative solution. Is that right with you?
1: Absolutely. You know, and, and I think I think of just things even as simple as. You know, when I was talking about earlier about, you know, the work from home situation and what that does, yeah, I think about why we live where we live. You know, we live typically, we try to stay a certain distance from the place we're employed at. Yeah. But think about when you were working from home, think about what that opens up the possibilities of where you're going to live. Do live we all way. really need to be crowded near a city? Or <laughs> can we truly live further out? now? Yeah. You're going to basically be trying to figure out where's the best internet uh, for a location. (laughs) And as long as I got a strong internet signal in this locality, I can live there Mm. because I can still get my job done. And it opens up the possibilities of who we work for. And so that could uh, actually
0: reshape like the, that could reshape the country actually, right? Like it might, it might. That's,
1: that's the point. The future of work will change based off that one variable alone. Yeah. You know, it's no longer this this business of, well, you must live within a certain radius of the job, right? You see that in some job uh, descriptions when you apply. <laughs> must live within this, this distance of the job, must live, live within this distance of the airport, a major airport, right? But this opens up and frees and liberates so many people. And again, from, a, from an employer standpoint, this this artificial barrier we've had for years that oh we just can't find the talent we don't have these people available well you literally have the world available now <laughs> yeah amazing so it's it's gone so it's just are we willing to think uh, big and bodacious and and make the adjustment for the new way of working
0: mm. Mm. amen thank you eddie this is so fun here's to here's to like tapping into our childlike wonder thinking big, taking care of each other when we do. I just, I love what you're standing for. You're walking the walk. And I'm really glad that our paths have crossed and, and that we got to have this conversation and, and all the future ones that we might.
1: Likewise, Andy, it's such a pleasure to catch up with you. Yeah, thanks, thanks for Andy. having me.
0: Yeah, you bet. So if people want to um, find out more about where you're up to, what's the what's the best place on the interwebs that
1: they can find you? com. ask, E-D-D-I-E. T-U-R-N-E-R. Uh, I spell that because sometimes people spell my name differently. <laughs> so my podcast is available there. Keep Leading is the name of my podcast. Uh, Keep Leading Podcast.com. KeepLeadingLive.com for the video version. And my book is available on my website as well. 140 Simple Messages to Guide Emerging Leaders. Yeah, it's awesome.
0: And you've talked, I mean, your podcast is just awesome. You've talked to so many thoughtful leaders like actual organizational leaders thought leaders like it's just a you you're tapped into the best in leadership right now so i really hope people go and check that out thank you yeah you bet all right eddie thanks a lot thanks everyone for listening and thanks for tuning into the wonder dome this podcast was produced by me andy cahill with support from Kelly serqua and audio editing services from john nolan at middle mountain studios The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep this show going for as long as I'm able... But 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power and and presence we need you now more than ever